When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Friends and citizens, the period for a new election of a citizen to administer the executive government of the United States being not far distant, and the time actually arrived when your thoughts must be employed in designating the person who is to be clothed with that important trust. It appears to me proper, especially as it may conduce to a more distinct expression of the public voice, that I should now apprise you of the resolution I have formed, to decline being considered among the number of those out of whom a choice is to be made. The President looks to me worried and growing old faster than I could wish, and his lady complains of infirmities of age and lowness of spirits for the first time. The accursed spirit which actuates a vast body of people, partly anti-federalists, partly desperate debtors, and partly Frenchified tools, will murder all good men amongst us and destroy all the wisdom and virtue of the country. I rejoice that the state of your concerns, external as well as internal, no longer renders the pursuit of inclination incompatible with the sentiment of duty or propriety, and am persuaded, whatever partiality may be retained for my services, that, in the present circumstances of our country, you will not disapprove my determination to retire. Were parties here divided merely by a greediness for office, as in England, to take a part with either would be unworthy of a reasonable or moral man. But where the principle of difference is as substantial and as strongly pronounced as between the Republicans and the monocrats of our country, I hold it as honorable to take a firm and decided part, and as immoral to pursue a middle line, as between the parties of honest men and rogues into which every country is divided. It is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness, that you should cherish a cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it. Citizens, by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have, in a common cause, fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. The enclosed slip from Benjamin's papers of this morning will show you that the electioneering campaign is opened already. Let me now warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party, generally. The common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, 
which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. I have no very ardent desire to be the butt of party malevolence. Having tasted of that cup, I found it bitter, nauseous, and unwholesome. The president is fortunate to get off just as the bubble is bursting, leaving others to hold the bag. Yet, as his departure will mark the moment when the difficulties begin to work, you will see that they will be ascribed to the new administration and that he will have his usual good fortune of reaping credit from the good acts of others and leaving to them that of his errors. Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence, and that, after forty-five years of my life dedicated to its service, with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be in the mansions of rest. I know well that no man will ever bring out of that office of the presidency the reputation which carries him into it. The honeymoon would be as short in that case as in any other, and its moments of ecstasy would be ransomed by years of torment and hatred. I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promise myself to realize without alloy the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorable object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. George Washington. John Adams. Thomas Jefferson. In the year 1796, in public in the case of President George Washington, and in private in the case of Vice President John Adams and former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, conversations were taking place about beginnings and endings, about transitions and legacies, about the path thus far and the one ahead. As the Washington presidency came to a close, people both in Philadelphia and across the nation began to consider what the past eight years had meant for the United States and what work would await the next president. There would be no unanimous decision on who Washington's successor would be, though, for the election of 1796 would be fought in a time of factionalism as competing interests fought for their vision of the future and ignored the outgoing president's warning on, quote, the mischiefs of the spirit of party, instead throwing themselves headlong into the spirit of faction, for better or worse. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get going, I wanted to touch base to give you an idea of what to expect. This is the last episode of the Washington Presidency. We'll have one more episode in two weeks' time on the post-presidency. Then the next series will pick up on July 4th, 2018, with the pre-presidency of John Adams. Like Washington's, I'm currently envisioning doing two episodes on Adams' life prior to the presidency. Then, with episode 2.3, we'll pick up where we left off. Now, with that, there's likely to be some crossover. What else would you expect with a presidential transition but most especially this one, where Adams retains Washington's cabinet. 
Thus, we're not going to get back to the Haitian Revolution until the Adams presidency, as that's when it really comes back into the story. Likewise, though we'll be covering a couple of events in France in this episode, we will get updated in the Adams series on all you need to know about the French Revolution at that time, as well as Franco-American relations, as that too is going to be a large part of the narrative of the Adams tenure. I'm also planning another Slavery in America episode for the Adams series to talk about some of the developments in the American institution of slavery after the invention of the cotton gin leading into the 19th century. We've got some interesting stuff coming up, and I can't wait to get to it. But right now, we're finishing up Washington's tenure, then we'll have the post-presidency episode, then we'll pick back up on July 4th with the life of John Adams. Got it? Good. Now, one more thing before we get started. I'd like to thank James Early of the American History Fanatics Facebook group, Steve Guerrera of the History of the Papacy and the Beyond the Big Screen podcast, and Alex Slauson of the Landry Slauson household for providing the voices of George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, respectively. I've had so many individuals who have helped over the course of the last year and a half in putting together this podcast, and I thank each and every one of you. With that, let's wrap up the Washington presidency. When we left last episode, the Washington administration had finally been able to clear the last hurdle to implement the Jay Treaty and had chosen replacements at the all-important diplomatic posts at London and Paris. While the work of government was being done, there was still an election to think of, even if the president hadn't officially announced that he wasn't seeking re-election. The Democratic Republicans pretty much had their candidate in mind with Jefferson, but there was still a fair amount of debate on the Federalist side. The party leaders weren't just willing to sit around and wait to see who came out on top, however. As noted by historian Jeffrey Paisley, quote, Hamilton was looking especially for a Southerner who might be able to take votes away from Jefferson. He had a couple of folks in mind. First, the name recognition of Patrick Henry drew Hamilton's attention. Not only did Henry have a positive reputation nationally, but he had also not been involved in national government. He had managed to avoid the political infighting that could be used to attack candidates like Jay, Jefferson, and even Adams. They could frame it as another American Cincinnatus being called out of the proverbial fields to serve his nation. John Marshall of Virginia was assigned the task of sounding out Henry, but Henry, due to, quote, his relatively advanced age and some festering ethical issues regarding public land purchases, along with, of course, having witnessed the attacks that had been lodged against Washington, was reluctant. By mid-May, Hamilton's attentions had turned elsewhere. There was one guy who had recently negotiated a highly popular treaty that might be worth looking at, Thomas Pinckney of South Carolina. As noted by Paisley, quote, As an old soldier and leader of men, a war hero who had done time as a British prisoner of war, Pinckney far more obviously fit the image of presidential leadership Hamilton was trying to project in his drafts of Washington's farewell address. Pinckney may have been no George Washington, but he was considerably closer than the portly, querulous attorney from Braintree. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? 
This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of that farewell address, Washington returned to Philadelphia to confer with Thomas Pinckney's brother, the new U.S. Minister to France, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, in September, prior to his departure for France. And this return to the capital allowed him to meet with his cabinet to reveal his intentions and make arrangements for the publication of his farewell address, which was published in the American Daily Advertiser on September 19, 1796. The choice of the Daily Advertiser was a strategic one for Washington, for, as pointed out by Paisley in his examination of the election of 1796, quote, it was much less politicized than the paper often considered Hamilton's mouthpiece, the Gazette of the United States, and hence much more trusted by Republicans and neutral parties as well. Washington worked with the editor, David Claypool, closely on the publication, going so far as to, quote, specify the type size and font style to be used. As a final bit of stagecraft, on the day that the issue of the Daily Advertiser hit Philadelphia, Washington was in a carriage headed back to Mount Vernon. Ron Chernow, in his analysis of the document, concludes that it was meant to have a, quote, unifying spirit. And indeed, so much in the planning suggests just that. Get your grains of salt ready as I'm planning to throw in my two cents. Taking into account everything I've read about the farewell address over the years, though it does take a more partisan stance than Washington had taken at any other point in his presidency, I believe that he intended it to be his last stab at solidifying a nonpartisan legacy. Besides Washington being mentally and emotionally exhausted by the presidency, I think that he looked at the situation and accurately concluded that the office for the foreseeable future would be unable to avoid getting involved in the factionalism that was on the rise in the nation. Were he to serve a third term, he would have to openly align with the Federalist. And like so many examples in history, the great man would become yet just another man fighting amongst the rabble. Besides, the arguments to get him to stand for a second term in 1792 had been that he was the only man who could unify the nation. But in 1796, he looked at a nation more divided than ever. Perhaps he was not the man for the time. Perhaps somebody else might have better luck. Personally and professionally, I believe that Washington looked at the situation and concluded that he had done all he could and that were the nation to sink or swim, there was little more that he could contribute besides a legacy and an example by which to follow. Anyway, that's my two cents. Take from it what you will. Now that, to use a 20th century metaphor, the bandage had been pulled off, the Federalists were free to talk openly about possible successors. But what about the other party? What was the main Democratic-Republican candidate Thomas Jefferson up to? Well, not much out of the ordinary, to be honest. He was keeping up with matters of politics as much as possible in his remote part of Virginia, but he made no moves either to advance his candidacy or, possibly even more telling, since it was being discussed in the newspapers, to deny his candidacy. Instead, 
In late 1795, he was visited by a Democratic-Republican senator from New York who was known to be highly ambitious and clamoring for an even higher office. In October 1795, Aaron Burr visited Monticello. Burr had been traveling up and down the eastern seaboard in what was seen as an attempt to garner support for a shot at the vice presidency. Both Democratic Republicans and Federalists tried to make political hay out of this meeting, with Jefferson supporters using it to try to strengthen ties, maybe not with Burr, but with other Democratic Republicans in New York, while a Virginia Federalist elector pointed to the meeting as a show that Jefferson was trying to direct the, quote, rash and violent measures of the opposition from afar. From all evidence, Madison and Monroe were more directly influencing Democratic-Republican efforts at the time, but Jefferson was becoming more comfortable with taking a more partisan stance. As he wrote to William Branch Giles on the last day of 1795, quote, were parties here divided merely by a greediness for office, as in England, to take a part with either would be unworthy of a reasonable or moral man. But where the principle of difference is as substantial and as strongly pronounced as between the Republicans and the monocrats of our country, I hold it as honorable to take a firm and decided part, and as immoral to pursue a middle line as between the parties of honest men and rogues into which every country is divided. He may be reluctant to play the role of partisan, but as he felt the future of the country to be at stake, Jefferson was willing to take a stand. What of that other major contender, Mr. Adams? Though not publicly, Adams discussed the matter much more frankly in correspondence with his wife Abigail and could not help but express a certain desire for the office, though of course claiming in mid-February 1796 that he really wished to, quote, retire before my constitution failed, before my memory failed, before my judgment failed, before I should grow peevish and fretful, irresolute, improvident. In the same letter, though, in talking about the upcoming election and the likelihood of Washington retiring, he went through how each of the three main candidates would handle the call to service, the three candidates being Jefferson, Jay, and though not directly naming himself, asserting that, quote, the heir apparent will not probably be wholly overlooked. He would not allow himself to think about becoming vice president again, but did speculate that should he, or I mean the heir apparent, become president, quote, Four more years, if life lasts, of residence in Philadelphia will be his and your portion, after which we shall probably be desirous of intimating the example of the present pair, or if by reason of strength and fortitude eight years should be accomplished. That is the utmost limit of time that I will ever continue in public life at any rate. I see nothing to appall me, and I feel no ill forebodings or faint misgivings. I have not the smallest dread of private life nor of public. Washington himself seemed to have seen Adams as the heir apparent, as the vice president reported to his wife in late March of a dinner that he attended at the president's house, with Washington asking him to remain afterwards for the two to discuss public affairs. Quote, he detained me there till nine o'clock and was never more frank and open upon politics. I find his opinions and sentiments are more exactly like mine than I ever knew before, respecting England and France and our American parties. He gave me intimations enough that his reign would be very short. 
He repeated it three times at least, that this and that was of no consequence to him personally, as he had but a very little while to stay in his present situation. This must be a confidential secret. I have hinted it to no one here. Once the secret was out, though, the president started to prepare for his departure from public life. It would not be a smooth departure, however. As we've already discussed in episode 1.31, Washington was working to bring Ona Judge back into enslavement, but he was also dealing with public concerns. French Minister of Foreign Affairs Charles-Francois Delacroix had authorized French Minister to the U.S. Pierre Gostadet to attempt to influence the upcoming elections in a pro-French angle and Adet was in the perfect position to do some damage to the Federalist cause in the fall of 1796. As noted by Pickering biographer Gerald Clearfield, quote, the Federalist faction in Pennsylvania was badly divided. Washington and Adams may have decided that Adams was the heir apparent, but other Federalists were not so sure. Hamilton had by that point decided to push for Pinckney, though not too hard to betray too much favor for him. The ace in the hand of the Pinckney supporters was that Democratic Republicans were openly expressing their support for Pinckney. As noted by Paisley, quote, Jefferson, Madison, and even the Aurora had nice things to say about him. Hamilton and King seemed to have hoped that Pinckney's inexperience in national politics might make him someone they could more easily guide than Adams or Henry. This push for Pinckney, however, was having a disastrous effect for Federalist chances in Philadelphia as it divided the party and opened the door for Democratic Republicans, a door that Adet would exploit. No matter how successful his efforts in the Keystone State, the French minister was not content with just having an influence on the vote in Pennsylvania. In the late summer, he traveled to New York and New England to, quote, gauge public opinion and encourage French supporters outside of Philadelphia while seemingly taking pains to force Federalist dignitaries to pay him the required civilities. Besides following the French government's policy of seeking to exert influence on the American public, one can imagine that Adet took some personal pleasure in this mission after the dismissive attitude with which he had been treated by Secretary of State Timothy Pickering. A major point in the trip involved a dinner in Boston, Massachusetts, where Adet, with Governor Sam Adams and General Benjamin Lincoln next to him, proclaimed that he was, quote, assured that the Americans will exert every effort to cement with the people of France a union formed under the auspices of victory and the blessings of liberty. Adet would continue his plotting through the fall. Then, at the end of October, the French minister pulled off what might be the first October surprise in American elections. He sent a message to Secretary of State Pickering, which he also had published in the Aurora on October 31st, informing the U.S. that the French directory had, on July 2nd, passed a resolution that, quote, the flag of the French Republic will treat the flag of neutrals in the same manner as they suffered it to be treated by the English. Gone were the days when the French and American flags would fly side by side in the French National Convention. France was now committing to seize any British goods carried on American vessels. Adet, in his letter, asserted that this action, which violated the Franco-American Treaty of 1778, was a matter of quote-unquote self-defense. He also pointed out that he had lodged numerous protests through official channels to Secretary of State Pickering, which had met with no response. 
a true statement. While professing a respect for American neutrality, Adet asserted that, quote, if through weakness, partiality, or other motives, they, i.e. the Americans, should suffer the English to sport with that neutrality and turn it to their advantage, could they then complain when France, to restore the balance of neutrality to its equilibrium, shall act in the same manner as the English? What was good for the goose, as they say. Washington returned to Philadelphia on October 31st, just as all of this was exploding onto the public arena, and the administration acted quickly to counter any ill effects that this bombshell letter may have. A response coming from Pickering was drafted on November 2nd and published in the Gazette of the United States on the 3rd. Again, from Pickering biographer Gerald Clearfield, quote, Washington's approval of it, i.e. Pickering's response, is perplexing, for the letter was completely out of keeping with the administration's policies. Basically, in the letter, Pickering outlined a few main points. First, he threw out the idea of freedom of the seas that had been a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy since independence, and instead, quote, went so far as to suggest that the British interpretation of belligerent and neutral rights was that which was generally accepted in international law. Freedom of the seas, he asserted, was little more than a dream for the future. Then, moving to the Treaty of 1778, Pickering suggested that, by agreeing to the treaty, the French had given up the rights to seize British goods on American vessels, but that no treaty thus far had been concluded with the British in which they relinquished the same rights. As an extra insult to injury, with regards to the American negotiations in Britain in dealing with disputes between the two, Pickering asserted that, quote, as an independent nation, we were not bound to render an account to any other of the measures we deem proper for the protection of our own citizens. Basically, the letter was a thumb in France's nose. We'll do what we want, but hold you to account for everything that you agreed to previously. It was as undiplomatic as one could imagine, and it did little to help the Federalist cause in Pennsylvania. Though the statewide popular vote was razor thin, with only 125 votes on average given to Democratic-Republican electors than to Federalists, when the election was held on November 6th, Jefferson ended up winning 14 of the state's 15 electoral votes. So what of Washington? Why did he agree to such a rash and discordant response? Even Hamilton questioned it in a letter to Washington on November 5th. Quote, I perceive in it nothing intrinsically exceptional, but something in the manner, a little epigrammatical and sharp. It is all important to us, first, if possible, to avoid rupture with France. Secondly, if that cannot be, to evince to the people that there has been an unequivocal disposition to avoid it. Our discussions, therefore, ought to be calm, smooth inclined to the argumentative, when remonstrance and complaint are unavoidable, carrying upon the face of them a reluctance and regret, mingling a steady assertion of our rights and adherence to principle with the language of moderation, and as long as it can be done, of friendship. Washington could only cite, quote, the opinions of the gentleman about me as his reasoning for agreeing to such a move. The administration's response would not be the last salvo, however. November 5th would find a second letter from Adet being published, one that would come to be known as the Cockade Proclamation, as he called for all French citizens currently in the U.S. to display the national colors in a, quote, circular blue, white, and red cockade, or 
as defined by Merriam-Webster, quote, an ornament, such as a rosette, usually worn on a hat as a badge. In order to, quote, secure the protection and reciprocal respect guaranteed by our treaties. This was intended as a very public rebuke and reminder to the administration and, more importantly, to the people of the formerly warm relations between the world's two republics. Adet saved his final and, in the opinion of historian Jeffrey Paisley, quote, his most populous and devastating barrage for last. On November 15th, his third and final letter was released to the public. Now, a note here. At this point, in terms of the actual states which cast popular votes towards the election, only one was remaining at this time, the state of Kentucky with its four electoral votes. Paisley, in his examination of the 1796 election, notes that there was much confusion, both domestically and internationally, about what exactly was supposed to happen with the election, as, up until this point, it had been more of a formality. Paisley speculates that Adet thought that this letter would have an influence on the election, but does not offer any direct evidence of this beyond the letter itself. Whatever its purpose, this letter was important in Franco-American relations, as Adet effectively suspended normal diplomatic relations between the U.S. and France with this letter. In a tone of lamentation, Adet writes that, quote, while everything around the inhabitants of this country animates them to speak of the tyranny of Great Britain and of the generosity of Frenchmen, it was at this moment their government made a treaty of amity with their ancient tyrant, the implacable enemy of their ancient ally. Oh, Americans covered with noble scars. Oh, you who have so often flown to death and to victory with French soldiers. You who know those generous sentiments which distinguish the true warrior, whose hearts have always vibrated with those of your companions in arms, consult them today to know what they experience. This was very much an appeal to the hearts and minds of the American public to try to turn them to the pro-French cause. This was also an open diplomatic breach, one which would greatly distress Democratic Republicans. As noted by Paisley, quote, the betrayal of the old alliance was as serious an issue for Madison and Jefferson as it was for the French. They thought Adet's arguments had much merit on substantive grounds, but as a campaign tactic, the letters seem ridiculously misjudged, providing ammunition to the very forces the French wanted to see defeated. As Representative Madison noted in a letter to Jefferson on December 5th, Adet's letter of November 15th was, quote, working all the evil with which it is pregnant. Those who rejoice at its indiscretions and are taking advantage of them have the impudence to pretend that it is an electioneering maneuver and that the French government have been led to it by the opponents of the British treaty. By December, there was still much confusion as to who had actually won the presidential election. But in the midst of the partisan battles of his final year in office, President Washington's mind was also on personal issues. On August 22, 1795, Washington's former personal secretary, Tobias Lear, married into the Washington family by wedding Francis Bassett Washington, who was not only the widow of Washington's late nephew, George Augustine Washington, but was also the niece of Martha Washington. As you may recall from episode 1.18, Lear's first wife, Polly, had been one of the earliest victims of the yellow fever epidemic that hit Philadelphia in 1794. 
while drawing him by marital ties closer to the nation's premier family. This marriage would bring added complications for the 30-something-year-old Lear, as, in addition to his own business ventures, with land speculation in the Federal District along the Potomac, and with the Potomac Company's efforts to promote river commerce to the soon-to-be federal capital, Lear would now also be responsible for managing the estate of the late George Augustine Washington. His marriage to Frances, or Fanny as she was known to the family, was not to last long. George Augustine had died of tuberculosis, and the president had warned Lear that he felt Fanny had also contracted the illness. A few months into their marriage, Fanny started falling ill, and in late March 1796, Francis Bassett Washington Lear died. President Washington wrote to his former secretary on March 30th that, quote, It is the nature of humanity to mourn for the loss of our friends, and the more we love them, the more poignant is our grief. He then issued an invitation to Lear to try to escape his troubles with a return to Philadelphia. Quote, As you talked of coming to this place on business, let us press you to do so. The same room that serves Mr. Dandridge and Washington, i.e. Washington's current private secretaries, is large enough to receive a bed also for you. And it is needless to add, we shall be glad of your company. The change may be serviceable to you, and if our wishes were of any avail, they would induce you to make your stay here as long as your convenience would permit. As Washington was drawing some compatriots close during this turbulent year, others were departing not just from his circles, but from this mortal coil. We haven't talked much about General Anthony Wayne since the Treaty of Greenville in episode 1.28. Wayne would return to Philadelphia in February 1796 as a hero and was fed it as such. The party would not last long, though. As Wayne returned to the West by the summer, quote, to supervise the surrender of British posts south of the Great Lakes to the American Army. He would be on his way back to Philadelphia when he suffered a bout of gout on November 17th that would detain him at Presque Isle, now known as Erie, Pennsylvania. He would suffer through the rest of the month, and by December 3rd, he was suffering from extreme, unremitting stomach pain that, quote, remained with unconquerable obstinacy and extreme torture. Wayne would finally succumb to the sailment in the early morning hours of December 15th. Wayne's death came at a time that the military establishment was already being shifted. As peace was settling into the Northwest Territory, Congress, and in particular the Democratic-Republican faction in Congress, saw this as an opportunity to rein in the military establishment. While the administration, and in particular Secretary of War James McHenry, argued that, due to the remaining international tensions with various European powers, the United States needed to maintain a strong sense of military readiness. The House was unwilling to listen and passed a resolution in the spring of 1796 calling for a 60% reduction in the Legion of the United States and reducing the rank of commander of the forces from a major general to a brigadier general. It was expected that this would force Anthony Wayne, who was seen as closely aligned with the administration, and thus closely aligned with the Federalist, to resign, while his second-in-command and rival, James Wilkinson, was seen as being closer to the Democratic-Republican cause. Little did they know, like we do, that James Wilkinson was a paid agent of Spain. But without that knowledge, Wilkinson was viewed as a useful tool to be used by the Democratic-Republican faction to put a halt to the growth of the professional military. Representative William Branch Giles went so far during this debate as to argue that, quote, 
Government would be better without any army, as it was always better for governments to rest upon the affections of the people than to be supported by terror. The Senate would ultimately serve to pull back the drastic cuts that the House called for, though allowing for some cuts and a reorganization of the nation's military forces, as well as making a provision that Wayne would be retained at his current rank, though this posting was due to expire in nine months. Even before his death, on November 1st, the Legion of the United States was no more and had been reorganized into the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Regiments of Infantry. Upon Wayne's death, as, quote, the rank of Major General was to expire in less than three months, the President could hardly appoint a replacement for Wayne. Instead of arguing for a renewal of the rank and an appointment for Wilkinson, the administration instead allowed the responsibilities of senior officer of the U.S. military to devolve onto Wilkinson, who, on April 22nd of that same year, had written to an Army confidant that, quote, I am truly sick of the service. Wilkinson had been trying to build a formal case against Wayne, which didn't seem to be going anywhere, and thus denying Wilkinson the position of head of the Army that he had been longing for since St. Clair was removed from the post, as we discussed way back in episode 1.11. But now, Wayne's death gave Wilkinson exactly what he wanted, and miraculously, he decided to stay in the service a bit longer. Don't worry, this won't be the last time that we hear from Wilkinson. The partisan battles did not end with the military, however, as there was continued criticism of Washington appearing in print. On November 12th, a 48-page pamphlet written by William Duane entitled A Letter to George Washington, President of the United States, was published in response to his farewell address. After going through a litany of points, it concludes that, quote, Posterity will in vain search for the monuments of wisdom in your administration. They will, on inquiry, find one of the most afflictive of political diseases inoculated on the Constitution in the funding system. They will discover that the great champion of American freedom, the rival of Timoleon and Cincinnatus, 20 years after the establishment of the Republic, was possessed of 500 of the human species in slavery, enjoying the fruits of their labor without remuneration or even the consolations of religious instruction, that he retained the barbarous usages of the feudal system and kept men in livery, and that he still affected to be the friend of the Christian religion, of civil liberty, and moral equality, and to be with all a disinterested, virtuous, liberal, and unassuming man. Of possibly even more impact than that was an open letter published on October 17th from the arch-revolutionary Thomas Paine himself to Washington, criticizing his tenure in office. The letter, which had been carefully crafted and drafted over the course of a year with Jefferson and Madison being involved in the process, was published in Benjamin Franklin Bosch's Aurora. In the letter, Payne asserted that, quote, elevated to the chair of the presidency, you, i.e. Washington, assume the merit of everything to yourself, and the natural ingratitude of your constitution began to appear. You commenced your presidential career by encouraging and swallowing the grossest adulation, and you traveled America from one end to the other to put yourself in the way of receiving it. 
from a figure who is seen as representing the revolutionary ideals as much as Washington. Paine's criticism was stinging, and he did not stop himself at criticism of the current president. Paine would attack the quote-unquote heir apparent Adams as being ambitious and never satisfied. He would also attack Adams on something that would become a constant fallback, namely the fact that Adams had sons whom he was grooming to assume public office. Washington had been able to avoid any accusations that he was trying to create a hereditary presidency due to the fact that he had no direct descendants. Jefferson, likewise, could avoid the criticism as his only living descendants were women. Adams, on the other hand, had a brood of sons. We'll get back to this criticism later on, but for the time being, it's important to note that this is a new attack being lodged by Democratic Republicans against the man who had become the second president. The party battles and governmental infighting did not stop Washington from, as described by Ron Chernow, quote, donning his black velvet suit and strapping his dress sword to his hip and striding into the house on December 7, 1796, where he discovered the gallery packed with the largest assemblage of citizens, ladies, and gentlemen ever collected on a similar occasion. In his 30-minute address, he crowed about Britain's evacuation of the northwestern forts and the liberation of American prisoners in Algiers. He also expounded on the need for a military academy, a vision later fulfilled at West Point, and issued a stirring plea for a national university in the new capital. Only in the final paragraph did Washington strike a private note, saying the present occasion aroused memories of the period when the administration of the present form of government commenced. Chernow did note that, although Washington's final annual address was for the most part quote-unquote well-received, the new representative from Tennessee, Andrew Jackson, quote, refused to salute the departing chief or join in the congressional response applauding him. Methinks we'll have an opportunity to see how the gentleman from Tennessee takes criticism in the future. The current president, like all of his fellow citizens, had to wait to see what came of the election of 1796. With this being a new process to everyone, remember, this idea of a general populace voting for its elected officials was still new, which, by general populace, though there may have been some isolated cases here and there that were otherwise, by and large, the voting populace meant white men who owned property. Even with that, in a number of states, the general populace had no say in choosing electors. The people only chose all their electors in six of the 16 states, while Massachusetts and New Hampshire allowed the people to choose some, while the legislature chose the rest. In the other eight states, it was all left up to the state legislature. Thus, the key elections for some of the states were the legislative elections, which occurred all through the year starting in March and wrapping up in October. Meanwhile, in the states that the people chose the electors, those ranged in date from November 4th through early December. To throw even more confusion into the mix, in states like Pennsylvania, the election itself wasn't enough to decide the matter, as the results were slow to get to the state capitol to be verified. Thus, on November 24th, Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin, despite being a Democratic Republican, had to declare two Federalist electors as the winners based on the results that had shown up. The Democratic Republican electors who had in actuality won went to Harrisburg to demand their right to cast their ballots as electors, but their request was denied. 
One of the Federalist electors would end up voting for Jefferson with one of his votes as a conciliatory measure, while the other stood firm and voted for a full Federalist ticket. Something else to note here, which would cause much confusion in the next couple of elections. The electors at this point did not cast separate votes for president and vice president. The system as it was at that point had each elector cast two ballots. Once all the votes were tallied, the person with the highest number of ballots would be president, and the next highest would be vice president. This was fine when everyone was casting at least one vote for George Washington, but in this case, it ended up that there were six different primary combination of tickets that electors voted on, along with a handful of favorite son or throwaway votes cast, including two for George Washington himself. We'll talk more about the election when we start the John Adams series. But for the time being, the important thing to know is that there was much confusion about who had actually won for an extended period, and this confusion caused wild speculation to run rampant. This was not resigned to men sitting in taverns or idle chatter in cloakrooms. Governor Oliver Walcott Sr. of Connecticut was writing to his son, Secretary of the Treasury Walcott, during the election confusion. In one letter, he asserted that, quote, I never believed that our present system of government or union would be very permanent. But I never could have believed that a people who had so recently gone through the distresses of a revolution and risen from a state of almost extreme poverty into an affluence more real than that of any other nation could so soon have forgot their sufferings as wantonly to sport with the enjoyment of the greatest social happiness and expose the continuance of it to the utmost hazard. A few weeks later, he wrote that, quote, I know of no Southern character who can secure more than a small part of the confidence given to Washington in case of a war with France. And if the frenzy of the Southern states shall render a disunion, in that case, we retire with more ease. Likewise, in late 1796, articles were being printed in New England papers that, quote, we shall not be satisfied to have a president appointed by Negro representation only, referring to the three-fifths compromise that allowed states in which slavery was legal to count its slave population as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of representation in Congress and the Electoral College, and that due to, quote, the moral and political sentiments and habits of the citizens of the southern states, the states of the Union had already approached near to the era when they must be divided. To put this into context, this is 1796 and the first real presidential election. Fears of disunion are not restricted to 1860 or to the current era, 2018, as of this recording. This uncertainty would last until late December, when, as noted in Adams's letter to his wife Abigail on December 27th, he confided that it appeared that, quote, it is now certain that no man can have more electoral votes and but one so many, to which he was referring to his old friend Jefferson, who he told Abigail, quote, will be daddy vice. Adams also shared with her that, quote, I know of no irregularity with the voting. Jefferson, for his part, wrote to Adams the next day from Monticello that, quote, the public and the public papers have been much occupied lately in placing us in a point of opposition to each other. I trust with confidence that less of it has been felt by ourselves personally. Our latest intelligence from Philadelphia at present is of the 16th instant, but though at that date your election to the first magistracy, i.e. the presidency, 
seems not to have been known as a fact. Yet with me, it has never been doubted. No one will congratulate you with purer disinterestedness than myself. Though in the course of our voyage through life, various little incidents have happened or been contrived to separate us, I retain still for you the solid esteem of the moments when we were working for our independence and sentiments of respect and affectionate attachment. Though not nearly as developed as he might like, there was still a glimmer of hope that the sense of nonpartisan patriotism, a duty to nation over faction, that Washington had aimed for so many years to engender was still a possibility for the future of the United States. On February 8th, the suspense was finally completely over, and Congress confirmed what the nation already knew. John Adams had been elected the second president of the United States with 71 electoral votes, while Thomas Jefferson had been elected vice president with 68 electoral votes. At this point, there were 23 days remaining in the Washington presidency, and the administration was still a frenzy of activity. Around the same time as the official results for the presidential election were counted, Secretary of State Pickering sent Washington his recommendations for seven appointments to diplomatic posts. The previous month, Washington had sent a special message to Congress on January 19th in response to French Minister Adet's various charges in which he provided Congress with, quote, a collection of letters and papers relating to Adet's complaints and how the administration had answered them, as well as the State Department's instructions to the new U.S. Minister to France, Pickney. In his brief message, Washington assured Congress that, quote, the immediate object of his, Pinckney's mission, was to make to that government such explanations of the principles and conduct of our own as, by manifesting our good faith, might remove all jealousy and discontent and maintain that harmony and good understanding with the French Republic, which it has been my constant solicitude to preserve. The administration even sought to assist with arrangements for the upcoming inauguration, as Pickering on February 10th sent Washington a message asserting that, though he would consult with Adams and the Senate, quote, on the mode of notifying to Mr. Jefferson his election as vice president, he had found, quote, no part of the Constitution requiring that the vice president-elect should come to the seat of government to take the oath to support the Constitution of the U.S., which appears to be the only oath required of him. That oath may be administered by any one senator to the vice president. This shows just how new all of this was to everyone. As Jefferson was at that point not in the nation's capital, it seems that this was an attempt to get a just-in-case plan together in case Jefferson was not able to make arrangements to be in Philadelphia by March 4th. Likewise, Jefferson himself had consulted with the Constitution and reached the same conclusion as Pickering, that his physical presence in Philadelphia on March 4th was not required, as he noted in a letter to Representative Madison on January 30th. However, he decided that, quote, I shall come on to Philadelphia on the principle which had first determined me, respect to the public. I hope I shall be made a part of no ceremony whatever. I shall escape into the city as covertly as possible. If Governor Mifflin should show any symptoms of ceremony, pray contrive to parry them. I'll go ahead and add in my two cents about this, so get your grains of salt ready. It was clear that there would only be a minor role for the vice president in both the ceremony and the administration. So what was the purpose of Jefferson to be there? 
a less ambitious man would have let a senator come to him to administer the oath. But Jefferson had plans for the future. Thus, he wanted to make a point of being in the seat of power for this auspicious occasion to identify him as a national leader, but at the same time, further developing the image of the humble Jefferson, eschewing all forms of formality and ceremony in direct contrast to what he knew was likely for the farewell to Washington and for Adams's inauguration. That's my read on the situation, but take for it what you will. For the time being, let us turn away from Adams and Jefferson, as we shall have much more to say about them in the future. The final days of the Washington administration were not just all work. As noted by Ron Chernow, quote, like later presidents, he, Washington, endured an excruciating round of farewell parties, balls, dinners, and receptions. Though harassed by the final duties of public office, he seemed rejuvenated as the albatross was slowly lifted from his shoulders. The final huzzah for Washington was on the occasion of his 65th birthday on February 22nd. As noted by James Thomas Flexner, quote, Washington's last birthday in public office was celebrated with a general passion which moved some Republicans to surprising enthusiasm and others to even greater disgust. A massive celebration was thrown at Ricketts Amphitheater in Philadelphia, including a dinner and ball, quote, which for splendor, taste, and elegance was perhaps never excelled by any similar entertainment in the United States, as was reported after the fact in the American Daily Advertiser. 12,000 were reported to have attended the celebration, with some even being, quote, almost trampled to death in the rush for supper. President-elect Adams escorted in the First Lady, and then President Washington entered to waves of applause. As the festivities began, Washington and his wife Martha, quote, sat on a raised couch beneath a canopy and periodically descended to mill about with guests. Martha was reported to have been, quote, moved to tears with the mingled emotions of gratitude for such strong proofs of public regard and the new prospect of uninterrupted enjoyment of domestic life. As the day drew ever closer, there were still a few bits of personal business to take care of. Washington's first Secretary of War, Henry Knox, had written him a letter on January 15th asserting that he, quote, rejoiced at the near approach of your retirement. In it, I pray God that you may enjoy all the felicity of which the human condition is susceptible. The consciousness of having acted well would, under any circumstances, have elevated your soul above the peltings of storms raised by malice and envy. Though wishing his former commander well, Knox had bad news to share, as he reported the death of three of his children, including one named after Washington. Washington, in turn, would take time in the second-to-last full day of his tenure of office, March 2nd, to write to Knox that, as, quote, amongst the last acts of my political life, and before I go hence into retirement, profound will be the acknowledgement of your kind and affectionate letter. Offering his condolences for his family's loss, Washington also asserted that, quote, although the prospect of retirement is most grateful to my soul, and I have not a wish to mix again in the great world or to partake in its politics, yet I'm not without my regrets at parting with, perhaps never more to meet, the few intimates whom I love. Among these, be assured, you are one. His last full day was spent signing the final bits of legislation from the 4th Congress, which was wrapping up its term, and having a dinner with President-elect Adams, the Cabinet, 
and foreign representatives. However, he also took time to write back to the former Speaker of the House of Representatives and current Lieutenant Governor of Connecticut, Jonathan Trumbull Jr., who had written to Washington on January 23rd, asserting that, quote, my regrets you have long since known on the subject of your leaving the government, while the event was in contemplation only. Some of the consequences, which I have heretofore ventured to present to your view in contemplation, have already been experienced in the late hardly contested election for your successor. Would to heaven that this might be the only evil we shall have to encounter in this event. Circumstances, however, almost forbid us the hope. On the last full day of his presidency, Washington wrote to Trumbull that, quote, I should be very unhappy if I thought my relinquishing the reins of government would produce any of the consequences which your fears forebode. In all free governments, contention and elections will take place. And whilst it is confined to our own citizens, it is not to be regretted, but severely indeed ought it to be reprobated when occasioned by foreign machinations. I trust, however, that the good sense of our countrymen will guard the public wheel against this and every other innovation, and that although we may be a little wrong now and then, we shall return to the right path with more avidity. I can never believe that providence, which has guided us so long and through such a labyrinth, will withdraw its protection at this crisis. While 1796 saw like-minded folks increasingly rallying together in factions, which at times threatened to break the greater ties of the United States apart, there was still one man headed into his retirement who felt that the groundwork he had laid in the past eight years would be enough to carry the nation as a whole forward, even in its darkest days. Despite the threats of factionalism and foreign intervention, despite the harsh words being bandied back and forth and the animosity, despite the uncertainty in certain public issues, Washington was a man leaving office hopeful and optimistic for the future. I hope you'll join me next time as we take a look at Washington's post-presidency and the legacy that his presidency left. Special thanks to James Early, Steve Guerrera, and Alex Lawson for their assistance with this episode's opening quotes. Check out the History of the Papacy and the Beyond the Big Screen podcast, and join the American History Fanatics group on Facebook if you haven't already. As for me, while I have attempted to be as detailed as possible about the Washington presidency, if you have any questions or anything more that you'd like to know, I would like to do a Q&A wrap-up episode. Please send any questions you may have to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can send questions via Facebook, where I can be reached at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or via Twitter, where my handle is presidencies89. I cannot thank y'all enough for this opportunity to share the Washington Presidency with all of you. From the first time that I studied the Washington presidency in depth and found so many interesting events and characters that aren't often spotlighted, I long for the opportunity to share them with others. And through your time and interest, I've been able to do just that. Thank you so much. And take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. 
As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.